and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements, author in the room conference call. My name is Katie and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thank you so much. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Author in the Room. Uh, this is a project of JAMA and IHI, that is the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, all made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I am indeed Madge Kaplan, I'm Senior Communication Strategist at IHI and I will serve as your moderator and I do for these monthly discussions. They're designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an article and action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Michael E. Picicaro. Dr. Picicaro is first author of the article, Combined Tetanus, Diphtheria, and Five-Component Pertussis Vaccine for Use in Adolescents and Adults, published in the June 22, 2029 JAMA. Dr. Picicaro is currently a professor of microbiology and immunology, pediatrics, and medicine at the University of Rochester in New York and a partner in the Elmwood Pediatric Group, where he continues to practice in primary care and as a subspecialist consultant. His major practice and research interests are in vaccine development, streptococcal infections, and otitis media. Welcome, Dr. Picicaro. Thank you, Madge. Great. This is Michael Pacicaro from Rochester, New York. Okay, and also with us today, uh, sorry, uh, Dr. Pacicaro, I'm going to get uh, just an introduction of Dr. Kodigal in here, and then we'll turn it right over to you. Okay. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Pacicaro's findings is Dr. Uma Kodigal. Dr. Kodigal is Vice President for Quality and Transformation and leader of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pursuing Perfection Initiative at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Kodigal is also the director of the Center for Health Policy and Clinical Effectiveness, which focuses on the development, implementation, and study of interventions for improving the health of children. Welcome, Dr. Kodigal. Good to be here, Madge. All right. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Because we know that making the leap from what's on the page, that journal article, to changes in how care is delivered can be daunting. Each Author in the Room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert. He or she suggests how to first plan, then try out some new ways of doing things on a small scale, observe the results, refine methods, and eventually come to a place where the change or changes do have the desired impact and can be fully implemented. That's the role Dr. Kodigal will be playing today. 
The way our hour together will go is as follows. Dr. Pakikaro will spend about 10 to 15 minutes summarizing his research. Then Dr. Kodogal will take 10 minutes to describe the improvement methods and suggest practical ways to apply the new uh, findings and research we're hearing about today. At the bottom of the hour, or very close to that, we'll turn to questions from callers and we'll have some discussion. IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants are able to incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. So we ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you and we do thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may really monitor and measure the value of these discussions. There are over a hundred people on the phone with us today. Members of the media may be present on the call on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. Welcome all. Let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Michael Pakikaro, who will provide an overview of his newly published research. Go ahead, Dr. Pakikaro. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much, Madge. So I'm calling from Rochester, New York. I was the lead author of this manuscript on a new novel vaccine which combines the traditional diphtheria and tetanus vaccines with a five-component pertussis vaccine specially formulated for use in adults and teenagers. The co-authors of this manuscript included Peggy Reynolds from the University of Maryland, Kathy Edwards from Vanderbilt, Mark Blatter from Primary Physicians Research in Pittsburgh, Dr. Gary Marshall from the University of Louisville, and three authors who are scientists at Sanofi Pasteur, formerly Aventus Pasteur, who participated in various aspects of the paper. I think it would be important before discussing the exact contents of the paper for us to set the stage by looking at the need for introducing a new vaccine for adolescents and adults, which combines a pertussis vaccine with the traditional diphtheria and tetanus uh, vaccine agents. Uh, the reason we're seeing this introduced now is twofold. One, the recognition of an increased need for such a vaccine, and two, the availability of acellular pertussis or component type pertussis vaccines, which offer a very nice safety margin for use in teenagers and adults, a new uh, opportunity which was not available with the former whole cell pertussis vaccines widely in use from the 1940s until the early 1990s. Let's go back with that issue of need. I think the key thing uh, about need was the recognition that pertussis or whooping cough immunity wanes with time. And just as we've all learned that a tetanus booster and a diphtheria booster provide beneficial boosts to protection against those two diseases every 10 years, we now recognize that the immunity garnered from the uh, childhood vaccination series also wanes and would benefit from a boost after a period of approximately 10 years. This is uh, fairly new thinking. 
and reflected the recognition of a rising disease in the United States. As we noted in our opening sentence of our article in JAMA, in 2003 there were 11,000 cases of whooping cough in teenagers and adults. In 2004, the preliminary number is nearly 19,000. The final number will likely exceed 20,000. So here you have this substantial jump in reports to the CDC, and estimates from reliable sources, uh, experts, the government, would indicate that this is probably 99% underreporting. That is to say, this is 1% of the disease present in the United States, thus placing estimates of between 1 million and 3 million adolescents and adults in the United States every year are experiencing pertussis. Many of these cases are milder and represent a several-week cough, which uh, many physicians diagnose as uh, bronchitis, sometimes mycoplasma bronchitis, but even other times perhaps postnasal drip, allergies, nonspecific cough. But a number of these adolescents and adults have a more prolonged cough. Uh, in China, the cough is uh, named the 100 days cough because, indeed, many times it will last as long as three months. This cough is characterized by the absence of fever. Uh, typically, like uh, pertussis in childhood, there's uh, the onset of a cold-like illness with runny nose and uh, so forth, but no fever, and then movement into this cough. Now, we also have other reasons for the need of the vaccination, and that would be what's called cocooning. That is, if you vaccinate those around an infant baby, such as uh, the mothers of infant babies in particular, they will not be able to transmit the whooping cough germ to their newborn baby prior to vaccination and uh, at two months, and prior to vaccine take, and the protective effect, which probably takes four to six months after birth. So the notion of vaccinating around or cocooning around vulnerable infants is a second need of this vaccine. And indeed, we're uh, excited about the possibility that by vaccinating at least subsets of adults, including women of childbearing age, we might be able to reduce the devastating impact of whooping cough in infancy where the mortality of the disease most often manifests itself. Now for the article itself. As I mentioned at the outset, this was a multi-center trial involving uh, very prominent investigators in the vaccine world. Uh, it was a prospective, randomized, modified, double-blind trial. It was comparative with currently licensed diphtheria and tetanus vaccine. The trial involved individuals between 11 years and 64 years of age. We presented our results in two groups, the teenagers, 11 to 18, and the adults, 18 to 64. The study took about a year from 2001 to 2002, and there were actually a total of 39 different clinical centers contributing to the study, which certainly 
provide for generalizability of the observations. The lead centers were recognized by their contributions in terms of Dr. Reynolds, Edwards, Blatter, and Marshall, as well as myself. Our uh, main objective here was to evaluate the safety of the vaccine, and secondly, the immunogenicity. How well did this vaccine produce uh, antibodies to the components in adolescents and adults. All of the assays that were performed are very standardized assays that uh, have been in place for about 15 years now with the introduction of the acellular vaccines in infancy. And as an additional measure, outcome measure, we looked at the levels of antibody in these teenagers and adults compared to this same vaccine in a, uh, uh, in a formulation for children that was tested in Sweden and proven to be highly effective for the prevention of whooping cough disease in those infants. So by comparing the immunity levels in the adolescents and adults to the immunity levels in the protected infants, efficacy could be inferred by the United States Food and Drug Administration in order to offer licensure. We enrolled uh, almost 4,500 uh, individuals into the trial, and uh, most of these individuals, in fact, 94% of them had already protective concentrations uh, against diphtheria, and 100% had protective concentrations against uh, tetanus none of them had very substantial levels of pertussis immunity when we initiated the vaccines. Then, after the vaccination, there was a dramatic rise in antibody. Uh, uh, I, I misspoke. The 94% protection and 100% protection was after the vaccine for diphtheria and tetanus. Uh, many of the vaccines, vaccinees had uh, lower levels than that before the booster. Now, going to the pertussis, we had a dramatic rise in immunity levels from the vaccine, and in fact, they were two to five times higher than that observed in the infants after the series of shots at two, four, and six months with the infant formulation of diphtheria tetanus and five-component acellular pertussis vaccine. In terms of the safety of the vaccine, we were very pleased to find that Essentially, the vaccine produced the same sort of reactions at the same percentages as occurred with traditional adult diphtheria tetanus vaccine. So all of the clinicians on the line who are familiar with the occasional local reaction of soreness, redness, discomfort in the arm from a tetanus shot, that's the same sort of a reaction which we'll see with the new diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine studied here. Also, on uh, infrequent occasion, maybe 1 or 2 percent, you will have uh, an adolescent or adult who receives a tetanus booster who feels a bit achy, generally achy, malaise, perhaps a very low-grade fever, and that's exactly what we saw with the new vaccine as well. So in terms of the safety, it would be best to summarize by saying that the vaccine uh, has the same essential safety profile as a tetanus booster.
Shortly after we published our paper in the Journal of the AMA, uh, the already licensed vaccine, it was licensed on June the 9th, was presented to the, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is the advisory group for the Centers for Disease Control. And uh, the committee debated on June 29th and then voted on June 30th to recommend that all teenagers in the United States should receive this vaccine. This is called the Universal Recommendation for Vaccination. The logic behind the recommendation for universal vaccination followed the points I made at the outset of my presentation, that is, the need is high to boost for pertussis immunity to protect individuals against the disease, which has considerable morbidity, although minor mortality in this age group, and also to potentially provide a cocooning effect around the highly vulnerable newborn infant until immunity is established. Both this vaccine by Sanofi Pasteur, uh, trade named Adicel, and a fairly similar diphtheria tetanus acellular pertussis vaccine made by GlaxoSmithKline, trade named Boosterix, were both recommended for uh, immunization, universal immunization in adolescents. The Adicel vaccine, the one reported here in JAMA, was studied also in adults for the cocooning approach. That was not undertaken by the GlaxoSmithKline vaccine, so no recommendation was made for its use in the adult populations. So now we have a new vaccine in summary, which is as safe as a diphtheria tetanus booster. It boosts up immunity to diphtheria and tetanus as well as the vaccine in use today but in addition provides booster to immunity against pertussis, thereby protecting against disease the vaccinated individual and potentially providing a cocooning effect around the vulnerable infant. This vaccine is currently available for purchase uh, from the manufacturer and is arriving as we speak in uh, health clinics and primary physician offices. Similarly, the Boosterix vaccine uh, has been approved by the FDA, uh, recommended by the ACIP, and it also is available for purchase from that manufacturer, GlaxoSmithKline. That concludes my presentation, Madge. I'm ready to turn it back to you and okay. the rest of the team. Well, thank you so much. Uh, couldn't have been uh, clearer and more succinct and more timely. So thank you, Dr. Pacicaro. Now we do want to turn to what this research and these new developments uh, suggest about changes in clinical practice that clinicians and those in a position to propose some new practice ideas might consider. So Dr. Kodigal, I turn to you. What sort of improvement in care follows from these latest uh, findings? Thank you, Matt. Greetings, everyone. My role in this call is to help us take the lessons from this very elegant study and decide how to use it to make improvements in our practices. Dr. Pekikuro has presented compelling evidence for the use of this vaccine routinely, both based on need and a robust clinical response 
as well as um, uh, data on safety. The value of good research is to provide guidance on how we practice. Um, this doesn't really benefit the patient until we use this research to actively update the way we provide care. I'm going to briefly review how we go about making these changes to achieve the results and the outcomes we desire. Our main guide in doing this work is what we call the model for improvement. This very simple yet powerful tool allows us to drive improvement in healthcare. In fact, as healthcare professionals, the method of the model for improvement should look familiar to us for two reasons, for good reasons. It is, in a sense, the scientific method that we've used in our research applied to management and improving processes of care. This process of organizational and practice improvement using this model has two parts, and I'd like to just briefly describe them. The first part of this is to state your hypothesis. The second part is to test your hypothesis. Again, very similar to the research method that we use. In the first part, which is about stating the hypothesis, there are three components. The first of this is to set clear aims that everybody understands. Specifically, what is it that you're trying to achieve? In our case, we might say that our aim is to achieve 100% immunization in all adolescents and adults for the reasons that have been elegantly described. The second part is to establish the measures so that you can tell if the changes that you test or the experiments that you're doing are resulting in an improvement. Clearly, the rates of immunizations are probably what would be an ideal measure for us in that regard. The third is to identify testable changes that are likely to lead to improvement and to state explicitly your hypotheses about what changes that you make in your practice will lead to the outcomes you desire, i.e., complete immunization. Once again, part one of the model for improvement includes establishing aims and measures and identifying testable changes based on data and a solid hypothesis. The second part of testing this model or testing your hypothesis is the more challenging one. In this second part, we run mini experiments. If you like to think about them in that way, these are small tests of change. This is not the same as experimenting on patients. This is more in line with rapidly testing rational changes in the way you practice in order to achieve safe, demonstrable improvements in care. This is something that most of us do every day in our work, and we just are asking that this be done in a more organized manner so that you can systematically understand the results of these changes and build upon what you learn. In the improvement parlance, the process of testing a hypothesis or running these small tests or experiments of change is called a plan, do, study, act, or a PDSA cycle. The process is simple and includes planning a test. So for example, testing a plan might be how the frontline uh, registration staff might identify eligible patients. 
actually running the test for a very small period of time, as much as half a day or a day, or with a single physician's practice, collecting some data, simple data at the end of the day that asks how we did on this particular test. Were we able to identify the right patients? Studying the results of the data, and then acting on what you have learned by uh, rapidly running subsequent tests of change. If the quality improvement language of the Plan, Do, Study Act, the PDSA cycle, doesn't sit well with you, and it sometimes doesn't, that is fine. Think about it as scientific method in action, using the scientific method for rapid action-oriented learning. Using the best available knowledge, you have to try something to measure it and understand the results of that trial and fold that learning into the next trial to further your understanding. At a minimum, hopefully, this explanation will help you to be more conversant with the quality improvement personnel in your local health system or clinic or practice. The last topic to mention about improvement is implementation. There is a difference between implementation and improvement. When you are ready to stop testing and feel confident that the tests that you have done are reliable and can be used, to begin, you begin to start implementing. Testing changes also helps you understand the logistics of implementation. You are much more informed after you have run successful tests of change about the critical implementation issues. It is at that time that your team is ready to implement the changes on a broader scale moving from, say, testing with one physician or for one week or for a single day to implementing into your entire clinic. Now, Dr. Piccicaro has made several recommendations based on this study, and from this, we could think about a number of steps to institute change. First, let's talk about some of these possible changes, and then we could open up for the line for questions or comments. Dr. Patikar, I'd like to begin with a question to you. Based on your um, compelling argument, I was wondering if you could tell us how you plan to test and implement this in your practice at Rochester. Yes, thank you very much, Uma. In fact, as you pointed out, this change can be tested rather easily by tracking within our practice using our patient databases whether or not we're seeing an increase in diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, vaccine administration in adolescent and adult patients. Uh, I will suspect that within a year, our local HMOs will add this measure as one, uh, since vaccines is a major focus of, of HEDIS and HMO quality, they will add this to their uh, tracking as well. But the way we're going to do it within our own practice is to create a database from our uh, computers which tells us uh, which patients qualify for the vaccine. We're going to utilize that database to uh, notify that there is a new vaccine available, and this will hopefully motivate uh, 
patients to come in for what otherwise might have been a skipped routine physical examination and utilize that opportunity to administer the vaccine. We've uh, already gotten through in the Rochester, New York area, the issue of insurance coverage. That could have been an implementation hurdle. But because of the endorsement of the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which was co-endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Family Physicians, our local insurance companies all provide coverage for such universally recommended vaccines. Uh, we will have a little bit of kickback, perhaps, from the anti-vaccine groups, but this represents a very small percentage of our practice. Uh, we do not have the issue of uh, 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 problems with individuals with low income because the advisory committee recommendation allows this vaccine to come under the Vaccines for Children uh, program, which now will need to be called Vaccines for Children, Adolescents, and Adults. That is, they will be provided free from uh, the New York State Health Department, which gets their vaccine from the federal government purchases for individuals in need of such vaccines. So this more or less, Uma, summarizes our implementation program and some of the hurdles we've already considered and have already overcome so that we can uh, already begin this change in our practice. Um, one of the, thank you, Michael, one of the uh, thoughts, I think, and an important step to take which you've addressed is are there any exclusions? Because as we think about implementing this into our practice, we are interested to know if everybody is eligible and what steps do we need to put in place. And as I understand it, the contraindications for this are very, very few, and therefore this could be routinely applied to all adolescents and adults. Am I correct? You are correct. It would be my hope, and I think it is the hope of the Centers for Disease Control uh, that this vaccine will essentially replace diphtheria tetanus boosters. So the same contraindications we might have considered for giving a tetanus booster would apply here. That is, you don't want to give the vaccine if you just gave the vaccine a year or two ago, or in those rare, rare circumstances where an individual showed a hypersensitivity reaction to an ingredient in the vaccine, you would not want to go forward in that unique, uh, nearly unique case. But virtually 99.99% of individuals who come to us as physicians will be able to receive this vaccine and should receive this vaccine in preference to any type of diphtheria tetanus. Rather, everybody should be getting, as we described in this article in JAMA, a diphtheria tetanus and pertussis booster. Okay, Dr. Pekikaro and uh, Dr. Uma Kodigal, thank you uh, for this uh, first opening segment. Lots of stuff, I'm sure, for callers to be chewing on here, and I'm sure many are waiting uh, for, uh, to provide some comments and ask some questions. A quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you, and we greatly appreciate 
appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of this type of discussion. We are indeed going to turn to questions from our callers, many of whom must be poised to start incorporating the new vaccine into their clinical practice. Please state your name and where you're from, be as concise as possible, and tell us to whom your question is directed. Okay, we'll go to questions now. All right, if anyone has a question, you may press zero one on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. We will then open up the lines one by one so each of you may ask your question. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press zero two. So again, if anyone has a question, press zero one on your touchtone phone. And it looks like we have a question from Anne with Lincoln Lancaster County. Please go ahead, Anne. I actually have two questions for the author, and uh, there are about six of us around the table listening to you, and thank you very much for your presentation. It was very helpful. The first question is, how, how soon after having a DT booster would it be appropriate to give the, the one that includes the pertussis? And number two is, is there a pertussis only available for adults and adolescents? Very good, Anne. Those are two very practical and important questions. The second question first, the answer is no. Neither of the uh, companies that are making these uh, acellular pertussis vaccine combinations with diphtheria tetanus intend to produce a vaccine of just the pertussis component alone. So that makes your first question all the more relevant. And in our study published in JAMA as part of our exclusion criteria, we uh, asked patients that if they'd already had a diphtheria pertussis, uh, diphtheria tetanus vaccine within five years, then they could not uh, participate in our trial. Now, therefore, it won't surprise me, I haven't seen the final package insert for this product, whether it might say that uh, we should not administer within five years. However, um, I think we also can use this forum for a scientific dialogue, and I can share with you that in Canada, where this vaccine has already been in use for several years, very effectively so, um, they allow the administration within two years. And I'm also aware of data uh, that has been collected in Canada from inadvertent administration of the vaccine to individuals in even less than two years. And it should come as no surprise to you that there were some large local reactions, Arthas-type reactions, similar to what we used to see when we were giving tetanus shots every year or two if somebody had a suspicious wound, but nothing more than that. So really the driver here is not anything related to inducing immunity. It's all about safety, and I believe that the package insert may end up saying five years. The reality is in Canada, two years, and the reality is in a pinch, even less than two years, but you might end up with a reaction from the tetanus uh, component. Okay, very comprehensive uh, answer and some additional information, uh, Dr. Pekikaro. Uh, let's go to another question. All right, the next question will come from Denise with NYC Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Please go ahead. Hi, um, Denise has a bunch of people sitting in with her. This is Sheila Polevsky from the New York City Department of Health. Just a brief correction or clarification, the vaccine for children program 
is by federal law restricted and cannot be used for anybody over the 19th birthday. So it will never, or at least not as it is now, include any adult uh, or um, young adult, anybody 19 or over. The vaccine cannot be used for them. So that's just a point. Um, there is a real interesting issue with this vaccine, and that is it cannot, it's not licensed for use as a primary series, so that if we see somebody in the office who has no vaccine record or is an immigrant or has never had vaccines for another reason, this vaccine is not licensed for use and is not recommended, but only as an active booster after a primary series. Mike, can you comment on that, please? Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for that clarification also. The, the, uh, to reiterate your point, so the Vaccine for Children program covers up to age 19. The ACIP recommendation for universal use was up to age 19, so we would be fine there. For the subgroups of adults where not universal recommendation was made, but rather a recommendation to consider, this would not be covered by Vaccines for Children funding. Very good. In terms of your point, the reason that this is not, this vaccine, the adolescent adult vaccine, is not recommended for the primary series really has to do with the composition of the vaccine in terms of the amount of antigen present. You'll notice in the publication and in subsequent papers that will follow that we use a little d, the same as uh, you're used to seeing with adult diphtheria, which is different from the big D for diphtheria in children. That's because there's more diphtheria in the children's vaccine than in this new adolescent adult vaccine. The tetanus amount is the same. Therefore, you see the same big T in the baby vaccine and the adolescent and adult vaccine. Finally, we come to the pertussis, often with a little a standing for acellular, that is a component vaccine and not a whole cell vaccine, and then a P. If it's a big P, it means that there is more pertussis antigen, as is the case with the infant and children, whereas with the adolescent adult in this vaccine for JAMA, that's a little p because there's less. How much less? Uh, this varies with the ingredient, but it's on the range of one-fifth as much antigen. You need much less antigen to boost immunity as you need to establish immunity. Therefore, there would not be a safety concern if someone inadvertently administered this vaccine to an infant it would only be that it would less likely establish uh, uh, a good immunity in a primary series. Thank you um, for that uh, opportunity to clarify. Um, perhaps I didn't make it clear. There are plenty of individuals over the age of seven for whom you cannot use pediatric DTAP who have never had a documented tetanus-containing vaccine. And so what I was asking was in individuals for whom you would be replacing TD with TDAP, this vaccine can't be used as a primary series. Okay. So that's a very interesting question. You have this individual in your midst 
what could you do? If you gave this, I don't know what the official recommendations of the CDC will be, which your health department likely will therefore need to follow. But I'm going to think out of the box a moment and say to myself, well, if I use this vaccine instead of a DT vaccine in order to at least get DT immunity, uh, how would that work out in an 8-year-old or an 18-year-old? And the answer would be the amount of diphtheria would be the same as I was going to use for my over 7-year-old. The amount of tetanus would be the same. And what I would be doing is giving a lowish dose of pertussis in addition. Could that be bad? And my answer would, would be, I don't see how it could be bad. Would it be effective? And the answer to that is, we don't know. We'll have to go back to UMA and say, we need another study to see whether using a low-dose antigen preparation in an older population would indeed prime the immune system against pertussis disease. It might because the adult immune system responds more vigorously than the infant immune system. But I, I'm not aware that that has been studied. That's something that would need to be studied before it could be recommended with a knowledge base that it would be effective. But I'm rather quite confident it would not be harmful. Okay. Well, it's interesting uh, things that might be explored uh, further. Uh, thank you, Dr. Pikikaro. Uh Uma Kodogal, is there anything you wanted to say before we want move on to the next question? I think this, uh, both the questions raised, uh, my initial view as I was reading this manuscript and thinking about applying it was thinking that any patient that was over the age of 10 or 11 that's either came for a routine visit or that you sent out a mass mail and said, hey, we've got this new vaccine, it's good for you, come get it, that we would have to think about a process by which the doing the right thing, giving the vaccine is the default. As I listen to the couple of questions, I think the specifications around who is eligible will need to be spelled out clearly for each practice within their protocol so that they can really apply it. And testing that would be really good to know. So, for example, for each clinic or each practice, you know, is that number 98% of the people that come that are eligible or is that number 90% or is it 50%? I think that would be a simple first test that people, people could do using one day's worth of data. Very, very good. Good concrete application of that and something that perhaps people can uh, enact. Uh, let's move on to the next question and see what other uh, issues are on people's minds. Go ahead. All right. The next question will come from Mark with Advanced Pediatric Associates. Please go ahead. Mike, this is Mark Perlman still in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Mark. Um, my concern is a couplefold. Number one, how do we get this new vaccine out to the emergency rooms who already give too much DT when it isn't needed. Um, they're not parts of a universal um, immunization registry, and if they had it available, they probably wouldn't use it. What are your thoughts about that? I, I think this will need an education campaign to the emergency room physicians, and I suspect that both manufacturers will initiate that education campaign, whether it's through advertising or continuing medical education or possibly some 
representatives calling on the emergency rooms. But in addition to that, Mark, my uh, I think that what's going to gradually happen over time is that this vaccine will be produced in far greater volume than the diphtheria tetanus product. And pricing-wise, will what they will develop a disincentive, financial disincentive for the purchase of diphtheria tetanus. It wouldn't surprise me. And we would, from various means, uh, achieve an uptake of this product to replace the uh, former diphtheria tetanus that is widely used in emergency rooms as well as physician offices. I think otherwise, you're, I mean, your, your comment about the arthritis reaction and very frequent vaccinations is going to really start occurring if they're not asking the question and the kids are getting multiple, whether it's a Tdap or a TD, um, will we'll raise some issues. I think you're right, Mark, that those same issues would exist, whether they were over-immunizing with TD or whether they end up in the future over-immunizing with uh, TDAP. Dr. Codigal, did you want to jump in there? Yes. Um, Michael, I think it would be helpful for people who wanted to start to use this in their office tomorrow if you could identify three screening questions that they would use that their front staff or the registration clerks might use. So we were sure we didn't give people who weren't ready for this, uh, but at the same time that we didn't miss any. Our study, as published in JAMA, really only used two main okay. uh, screening questions, which was, have you had a tetanus booster in the last five years? And secondly was, have you experienced whooping cough in the last two years? That a front staff could do or a questionnaire could be put together. The issue of hypersensitivity to one of the components of the vaccine, which is another contraindication, is not something that I could rely on my front staff or my nurses to inquire about. I think my own opinion would be that this is more something that the uh, public health nurse or the physician would need to uh, do. Okay, let's uh, move to another question. All right, the next question will come from Susan with IHI. Please go ahead. Hi, the question I had, I'm a hospital-based infection control practitioner, um, is looking at adult immunization um, of healthcare workers. We certainly had an exposure that resulted in numerous um, members of our pediatric staff receiving prophylaxis and with erythromycin and the complaints about stomach upset from that. So um, have you thought of an approach for healthcare workers and recommendations for healthcare workers? I thank you for that excellent question. Uh, this was something that was actively discussed by the advisory committee to the CDC as to which adult populations to target for uh, a recommendation, and one that was uh, widely accepted was healthcare workers. Now, exactly how we're going to implement this, it might be along the same lines as we move to the future and address change as we have for the hepatitis B mandatory immunization. But after seeing places like Cincinnati from, from where UMA is, you know, nearly have their hospital closed down from a pertussis epidemic among their house staff and attending physicians, uh, I think it would be prudent 
if I were a hospital administrator, to add this vaccine uh, into the regimen for a mandatory vaccination. Healthcare workers will be key. Uh, I myself will take this vaccine next week um, and continue to take it every uh, five to ten years, depending on how the evidence uh, rolls out in the future as to the timing of boosters. But having experienced whooping cough myself as a chief resident, I can tell you it's a miserable disease and I don't want to ever have it again. Which brings a point that wasn't questioned, even if you've had whooping cough, it does not provide lifelong protection. This is another notion which has been clearly refuted by data over the last five or ten years. So neither the vaccine nor the disease will provide lifelong protection and boosters will be necessary. Dr. Pekikaro, this is Malj. Um, any sense of sort of the timeline that the advisory committee to the CDC may be working on in terms of looking at select uh, groups in the adult population, particularly in the healthcare workforce? Uh, no, I don't have a timeline, Madge. I know that you know there were that the active discussion surrounded the healthcare worker, which seemed to be a slam dunk, and then a more debate around women of childbearing age to provide the cocooning effect. Again, this will not be a universal recommendation as occurred for the adolescents. It will be more of a permissive recommendation once the final language comes out. Those are the two groups that I've heard the most about. There may be others I'm not aware of, but okay. I don't know the exact timeline. Okay, that's fine. We'll be keeping an eye on it. All right, let's go to another question. All right, the next question will come from Deborah with Minnesota Department of Human Services. You may go ahead, Deborah. Yes, I was wondering, um, I'm, can you hear me on the speaker? Yes, Deborah. You're fine, loud and clear. Okay, mine was kind of related to what we were just talking about is that you said that the 11 to 18 year olds and the 18 to 64 year olds were the ones that you studied and I'm making, I should, probably should make the assumption, but I would guess that the majority of the cases that you saw were in that 11 to 18 year old range and that's why you are recommending that universal vaccination. Um, that 18 to 64 year old range is kind of broad and I was wondering, are you seeing uh, pertussis problems with those that are in that 40 to 64 year old range and are you just recommending it like you said for the DT booster or are you looking at people that are having some respiratory problems now like asthma or whatever that may indeed be having pertussis and it's being misdiagnosed? Okay, very good question for which we need more data. There is evidence that individuals who uh, contracted pertussis in childhood while not protected for life, nevertheless experience uh, mild, much milder disease than uh, individuals who acquired all of their immunity through vaccination. So this means in the age cohort of about 55 to 64 in, in, in what we just discussed and above, most of these individuals contracted pertussis in childhood. It's like chickenpox before chickenpox vaccine. Almost everybody got whooping cough in childhood in the, in the uh, pre-vaccine era. So can you nevertheless experience pertussis beyond the age of 45, 55? Yes. Uh, this has been documented 
uh, quite elegantly by studies particularly in Europe and most notably in Germany. But we've also noted evidence of pertussis in uh, trials done here in the United States sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. Uh, the reason that, uh, that we're talking about up to age 64 is only because that was the age group for the JAMA study. There's no reason to believe that individuals over age 64 are immune from pertussis, and in fact, they, because of waning immunity, they may be increasingly vulnerable to pertussis. But we need more data for me to give you more specific information, and while I'm not providing you with simply anecdotal information, this is published information, we don't have good denominator data to give us an idea of how frequently this occurs as we go higher in the age groups. Your supposition is correct that we have the best data in teenagers, and the best data in the United States has come from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, where they use a serology test as well as culture to carefully look at pertussis incidents in the state of Massachusetts, and my recollection of their data is that about two-thirds of the cases that they have identified by their diagnostic techniques have been in teenagers, and one-third have been in adults, and uh, among the adults it has been spread across the decades with no particular peak identified among those decades. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, believe it or not, <laughs> wow, does time fly. That is actually all the time we have for questions. There's going to be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue a conversation with one another. You will find a link to this discussion group right on the homepage of IHI.org. Look under Community, then Discussion Groups. In order to view or participate in the discussion group, you do have to register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. We are coming to the end of what is the fifth in a series of hour-long discussions we call Author in the Room. Thanks so much to Dr. Michael Pakikaro and Dr. Uma Kodagal for their knowledge and guidance today, and I would like to give you each an opportunity to make some brief closing remarks, uh, some thoughts uh, to leave, leave us with today. Uh, Dr. Pakikaro, why don't we start with you? Our practice will be implementing this uh, change immediately because it's needed, it's beneficial, there's virtually no downside. I would recommend that all the listeners in the room uh, follow the recommendations of the CDC for universal use in adolescents and selective use in adult populations of this new, very valuable, wonderful product. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Kodagal, go ahead. A few take-home messages for me. First, discuss among your practice group that you have made a decision to adopt this practice, which is a universal recommendation. Clearly identify where possible um, the eligible population using two questions, um, immunization uh, prior to five years and, and presence of whooping cough in two years, and the third, which is eligibility age greater than 10 years. Get a sense of the number of eligible patients in your practice. This would be helpful if you had an EMR by looking at patients greater than age 10, or if not, then on a daily basis as patients visit your practice. Post a letter or signs in the office to get people to ask for this vaccine during their visit. Empower and specify frontline staff to be able to do the screening 
with the caveats that Dr. Picatore described and implement a mechanism of default as the right function, i.e. passive approach to this rather than requiring everybody to um, opt in uh, versus having people opt out of it. Standardize your orders and prescriptions so that this happens and track your measures so you can demonstrate that you've provided the benefit to your population. Well, a useful uh, set of uh, recommendations to leave us with. Thank you so much. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on August 17th and will focus on an article from the July 13th issue of JAMA, Symptom Experience After Discontinuing Use of Estrogen Plus Progestin. The lead author and our guest will be Dr. Judith O'Keene. Look for further details about this on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As a reminder, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether Author in the Room participants make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion of the effectiveness of the newly available five-component pertussis vaccine suggests some changes in practice for clinicians treating adolescents particularly. We are asking all participants to complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after the call and three months from now. And we do thank you again, all who've joined us today, for taking the time uh, to be with us and for completing these surveys. Thanks to our guests, our speakers, our wonderful callers today. Thank you all for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day.